go ahead. So why don't you start? Just, just, why don't you at, well, go ahead? I mean, I'm confused here. Are you yeah, we'll are we live here? Are we rolling or what, what's going let's, on? Let's pretend we're rolling. The truth is I can cut it, Tom. So if you, if you say something you don't like, don't worry about it. We'll keep going oh. and mm. dip in and bring it together. Yeah, go but, ahead. Hello, welcome to the Can You Keep a Secret podcast where we have private conversations with public figures. I'm John King. This is Tom Garrity. Uh, let's talk a little bit, Tom, about what we're going to try to do with this thing. Okay, John, what are we going to try to do with this thing? <laughs> well, I think we're going to try to have conversations where we don't act like rubes. And if we're talking to a hockey player, we don't ask all the hockey questions. And and I think for the listener, hopefully you get to hear a whole bunch of stuff you would have never heard before. Yeah, I mean, I think That's these podcasts, I mean. yeah, I mean, I think podcasts are like, for the most part, supposed to entertain people. I mean, a lot of them that I've listened to are obviously some, some are really focused on, you know, um, information and, you know, really high end speakers related to different topics. And it gets really into the minutia. I think this is just more, you know, um, a, a podcast that deals with, you know, nonsense and fun. And, you know, we're going to focus with kind of, you know, celebrities in their own mind, um, that, you know, we're going to have, um, you know, kind of, kind of behind the scenes conversations like you would if they were standing in your backyard, you know, and not talking about how great they are or talking about all the things that they've accomplished. You know, some of that stuff will be touched on during the intros and whatnot, but it's just going to be more about their life and, you know, where, where they're at in their life and, you know, things that normal folk like you and I can relate to and not just hearing about how great they are. I completely agree. It's funny. I think half of the podcasts I listen to it, they're like the books you buy at the airport that are supposed to fix your life or your career. And I think this is much more of a, if you bumped into this person at a backyard barbecue or a, or a local dive bar, it's, it's kind of off the cuff. Um, and I think uh, I've enjoyed, we should talk a little bit about our, our guests so far, but uh, I know the first, first person we talked to, Mr. Martin Zeller, basically a, a natural resource of the state of Minnesota. And perhaps I think maybe the nicest human being on the face of the earth. I don't know if you feel the same way, Tom, but this guy is, um, it's like he was sent here from the fifties. He's just so, he's such a good guy. Yeah. I mean, again, what I really enjoyed about talking with him is, you know, we both have had the positive, um, time spent with him where he came and performed at your wedding and he's performed at a couple events that we've been involved in where I live here in Stillwater, Minnesota. And, um, you know, what you see is what you get. He's just down to earth. He's very nice. He's very humble. Um, you know, he's a guy that, you know, when, when we chatted with him, you know, just really interesting to hear about how his perspective of growing up in Austin, Minnesota to his level of success and where he wanted to get to. And it was just like, basically like he was standing in our kitchen and just chatting with him. And it wasn't about, you know, all these things that I'm sure, you know, he, you know, has been asked before in the past. It was just like, you know, just a normal conversation. Yeah. And he just, you know, he did it. Uh, he really hasn't, he's never, he did one podcast. He was on a panel and he's never really had the in-depth interview. You know, there's a bunch of books being written about, you know, the replacements and local bands in the twin cities, the, the gear daddy certainly haven't been, opened up that way. So to get this time with Martin and have him from Mexico on a Zoom kind of breaking down um, his career and 
And I think what I thought was really great is he's just settling into, he is what he is. Uh, he's not chasing it. Um, he, I think it's worth us mentioning to our listeners that Martin really does everything himself. He doesn't have a manager. If you want to support this guy, um, whether it's because you love him now or you loved what he did 20 years ago when you were in, in college, check out his website, martinzeller.com. He's very proud of this record, Rooster's Crow. Um, and Chris Reimscheider from the Star Tribune said the best record of his 25-year career. So I know I'm going to hit that one up and put it on when I'm running around. Yeah, and the thing I like about him, too, is like when he, when when he's performed for the things that I've been at, you know, I mean, you think a guy who's been in, in the industry as long as he's been and how much success he's had, you know, sometimes those guys can, you know, we're all like that, even in the worlds that we live in, you get a little, I wouldn't use the term jaded, but you get a little, um, uh, a little more annoyed by stuff and a little bit more, um, you know, kind of touchy about certain things, or I don't know, you just getting older and maybe get a little bit more crabby, but he's not that type of guy. I mean, so everywhere you go, you know, everyone throws out Zamboni, everyone throws out all these things. And as you hear from his interview with us, those are the things that really don't excite him that much. Um, and yet he does them and he does it well. And, and the fan, you know, you know, he, he's, he's there for the fans. And I think that that's a real credit to what he's done. And that's why I think he's still extremely popular and people want, want to come out and see him. Outstanding. Without further ado, can you keep a secret episode one, Martin Zeller? Oh, the man himself. Hello, hello. How are you guys doing? Pretty good. You can tell COVID, you know, everyone's just kind of, it's pretty much uh, a little bit, getting a little bit better. You're, are you in Mexico? Yeah. Awesome. And what's, wow, beautiful. What city yeah. are you in in Mexico? What's that? What city are you in, in Mexico? San Miguel de Allende. Very, very well-known city within Mexico. Famous, historic, like, it's a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Um, colonial city. Uh, we're thrilled to have you. This is called uh, Can You Keep a Secret? Private Conversations with Public Figures. And starting in the Twin Cities, um, I'm surprised, Martin, just to start. I have been a big fan for a long time, and I've never seen – I really haven't seen you on a podcast. I haven't read the, the, the book, the, uh, the in-depth article. I mean, you, uh, you, have you really been out there telling your story much anywhere? No. No, I'm – I kind of made a shift uh, in my career – about the time that our second son was born, where I, I kind of shifted my focus to making a living, you know, with music rather than chasing the dream, so to speak, like, you know, trying to, trying to get the hit album, trying to whatever. And it, it's, so I got rid of man. I don't have a manager. I, uh, I self-release my albums, which, or, you know, I did. Um, and I really, it's just, it's, and then I play largely in the Midwest. Uh, I touring, I don't tour much anymore or very little. I did the West coast a couple of years ago, but so yeah, I'm sort of on automatic pilot. I don't do a lot of press and this, I think is my first podcast. Well, it's going to be a good one. Why me back? Let's go back to Austin Minnesota. So how do you, 
how do you get into music? What's your, like, if, if I'm in the, the childhood home of Martin Zeller, what am I seeing and who are you looking up to? When do you pick up the guitar? How does it begin? Um, well, you're seeing kind of a melancholy child. <laughs> my dad was, uh, my dad was sick, had six open heart surgeries over the course of his life. So he was in the hospital a lot and we were broke a lot, which kind of really has a lot to do with who I am today. But I, um, I didn't really fit into any real niche. You know, I was not an athlete. Um, I was good at school, but not, you know, a brain. Uh, so music kind of saved me. It's like, it finally was something that I was good at. And uh, I found me a place, found me some direction. And I listened to, I started out listening to, you know, whatever was in the house, which was uh, my parents' albums, Frank Sinatra, that kind of stuff. And then I remember I got uh, the soundtrack to American Graffiti was all of a sudden in our house for some reason. And I heard the song Runaway, the Del Shannon song. Yep. And man, that like, it just grabbed me. And I, I think that's when I decided that I wanted to write songs. And that's what I want to do for a living. I, I, I did not think there was any chance I had actually could do this for a living. I mean, it was like, but I knew it's what I wanted to do. It. And I got a guitar, I think in uh, summer before ninth grade. And we started playing Shortly thereafter, even though we really didn't even know how to play our instruments, we we started actually taking shows before we were any good. And Nick Ciola, who's still my bass player to this day, was in that band. What were you called? What was Fallout? Fallout. Fallout. We and we we did whatever we had to do to get a booking. So we. We had a set list for proms and homecomings and weddings and biker bars. And thankfully there was sort of a dearth of bands in Southern Minnesota at the time. So we actually worked a lot and we really and truly were not very good, but we worked almost every weekend and we would do bars. You know, we were in ninth grade, had to show our union card to get in. Um, and then on breaks, we had to sit on the stage because that was the, that were, those were the rules. So we'd do a 45 minute set, sit in chairs on stage for 15, another 45, <laughs> sit in chairs and play, you know, five hours in bars or, yeah. So, I mean, really kind of paid my dues or we paid our dues from a pretty young age. What's it like being a ninth grader playing a biker bar in Southern Minnesota? Oh man, I can tell you, uh, seriously, we saw some things that were just ugly. Uh, no ninth grader should have seen, that's for sure. That's awesome. So, I got to tell you, I was going to say, basically Minnesota, Wisconsin, ninth graders usually can just get into the bars. So it's usually not that big of a stretch that you could play there. Yeah, but except for the fact that in a town like Austin, everybody knew everybody. Oh, that's right. So it's like the guy who was checking IDs at the bar knew you, knew your parents or knew your right. money here. So there was 
we would go to Rochester and sneak in. Yeah. I remember going to see the suburbs. Um, we'd go see the suburbs and the flaming nose um, at bars in Rochester and got in very easily. Is that something too, like when you were starting out, you mentioned how you, you started from uh, the beginning, but as you started playing, were there bands that you talked to to learn from or network with, so to speak, or were there any kind of bands out that there that, that were out there that was helping you and your band saying, Hey, these are the things you should be looking at doing, or was it just kind of like, it is what it is. Well, definitely not until it was what it was until we hit the twin cities. Okay. And, and I got to say that we were, our timing was perfect. I mean, there was no better place to be than Minneapolis, Minnesota in the late eighties, early nineties. I mean, and my whole world just changed in every way. Once I got out of Austin and got to the twin cities and within a month, I think of having moved there and I ostensibly was going to school at the U of M, but that was I went only because that was my way to get out of Austin or, you know, convince my parents to. But uh, I saw both the replacements in Husker Du within, I think, the first month. Both of them at the U of M. Um, one down in the basement at the Kaufman Union and one in the, and then the replacements on the big stage in Kaufman Union. I mean, those two shows absolutely changed everything for me. And Oddly, this is very strange, but my roommate, my buddy from Austin, uh, all of a sudden just said, you know, my cousin is playing in a band tonight down in the hole at Kaufman Union. He goes, he's really a weird guy, but you want to go see the band? I'm like, sure. So Wayne and I went and his cousin was Grant Hart from Husker Du. So, so Wayne, my, my roommate and friend Wayne from Austin had never heard of his cousin's band that we didn't know who they were what they were about and oh my god that was just literally just turned my world upside down but the replacements even more so because um you know i i came from a background where we were you know in this band like i just said we did what we had to do to please people and get booked and then all of a sudden went and saw the replacements and for the first time in my life, I saw a band that didn't give a fuck what people wanted. You know, it was like, we're going to do what we're going to do and like it or leave it, you know. Yeah, yeah. And that was just unbelievable. I mean, that you could do that just boggled my mind. It just changed everything for me. Um, and then we got uh, we, you know, it took a long time to get any traction. We finally got in it new band night and the seventh street entry. And then that was just changed everything. Cause yeah. first Avenue got behind us big time. They really liked us. And we started opening for tons of people. And pretty soon I would say soul asylum mm -hmm. were the first band that really, like you were saying, sort of mentored us. Yeah. Um, that we became friends with, and they had a lot of connections. They knew everybody. 
we knew no one yeah. you know, coming from Austin. We were really the only outstate band mm-hmm. going in that music scene. Mm-hmm. So I mean, we had the, all the other bands kind of knew one another. We knew no one. So having somebody like Soul Asylum and then the folks at First Avenue start to introduce us and yeah. get at shows changed everything. What? So you really went on a rocket ship ride with the Gear Daddies. If you look at the the couple albums, you know, the Red Door and St. Cloud and just coming from Austin. Um, do you remember the moment when, I mean, was it, did it get, were you on a ride that you couldn't get off or were you on a ride where you were kind of enjoying it the whole way? Um, I'm just, I, it feels like it just went, it was just a rocket ship uh, and you were kind of hanging on to it. What, what was it like, the Gear Daddies? run there in the 80s early 90s well it was a slow burn for a while um we started out uh said just kind of slowly gained traction then we got signed to a little record label gark records who i think it was us a trip shakespeare were on there um and are signed you know i think they 500 copies i think were printed at let's go scare out Vinyl, there were no CDs. Um, and then shortly thereafter, um, we got signed to Polygram, which was an absolute fluke. And I'll say this again, going back to the only reason that we were signed to a major label, we weren't a major label band, but there were all these amazing bands in Minneapolis that were like kicking the doors open and every label in the world was sending someone to Minneapolis, like get me a Minneapolis band, get me a Minneapolis band. And we, it was like the place to be. And if that, if, you know, Prince and Soul Asylum and replacements and Husker Du suburbs hadn't been there, just like bringing so much attention to Minneapolis, we never would have been signed. And the guy who, the guy who signed us, it was, a guy for came from um, A&M records to see us. Uh, and I forget it was, uh, there was a, some sort of a festival in Minneapolis. So he came to like check us out and he came to our practice space. And we basically did a, you know, audition. And there was another guy that came with him from Polygram. And uh, so the guy that came to see us sat there and listened. And the guy from Polygram came in for five minutes and then walked out and left us with the guy from A&M. And then that was done, A&M passed. And the next day after A&M passed, Bob, the guy from Polygram called and signed us. So he was really interested, but he waited until his buddy, who was, who was the guy who was actually there to see us, passed. And, and then they bought the rights to Let's Go Scare Al and re-released it while we were recording Billy's live bait. And, and then it really was just sort of kind of a holy shit and ride. We, you know, we were four guys from Austin. We were, you know, great friends. We still are. And that helped a lot because, you know, kept our feet on the ground. We, we knew each other too well for anyone to get, you know, think they were a rock star. And, and we were of, always were of, working class band. I mean, a lot of cool things happened to us 
but mostly, you know, we parked, we were never on a tour bus, you know, never set foot on a tour bus, but we did, we're on a lot of tours where the opening act was on a tour bus and we right. parked in the shadow to their shadow to keep the van warm or from getting too hot. Um, we got to go to a lot of cool parties because the headliner knew the people and drug us along. Um, so we, we, we rode a lot of coattails and had a lot of very cool things happen to us, but we were never, you know, all over MTV or all over the radio or anything like that. Do you have, so like, well, you know, I was going to ask, like when you, when you mentioned the, the friendship that you had from the beginning and even to this day, um, that has to be pretty unique in bands, isn't it? That um, I know bands stick together for a long, long time, but along the way, you you guys all had the similar kind of viewpoint on your success and what you were doing. I mean, what, what do you think the key ingredient was? Was there ever, you know, I'm sure you guys fought and stuff, but was there ever a time where maybe some guys wanted to go in a different direction or were you guys just always having the same vision? You know, I think for the most part, you're having the same vision. I mean, and I'll say the other guys deferred to me a lot since I was the main songwriter and the singer. Um, and that always helps, you know, when, when one member is, you know, kind of the primary that like in, in a lot of cases, like the Beatles, when you have two, you know, really, you know, songwriters that are equally sort of, in the mix, then you get a lot of fighting over direction and stuff. But no, I mean, we, and there wasn't even a lot of fighting. I mean, we got in our nerves, each other's nerves would, you know, after being three months on the road touring or whatever. But uh, the, the, the main secret was, I just think the commonality of coming from Austin, Minnesota. Mm -hmm. And I'm married, my wife, we're, you know, married 30 years pretty quick here. She's from Austin, and I think that's a huge part of the secret of our marriage, too. It's a, it was a weird place to grow up. I mean, they're never going to ask me to be a spokesman for the <laughs> Chamber of Commerce because it was, a, it, it was kind of a dark place to grow up, a meatpacking town. It was a heavy-drinking, blue-collar, hard-working slaughterhouse town. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think – again there really was and i can't i'm not sure i can even nail it down but there's a commonality that growing up there formed you to a certain extent and so i don't know who we were and yeah it was a it was a i didn't have a pleasant experience growing up there and i think i can <laughs> speak for the rest of the guys in the band and a lot of my friends you know that grew up there well, you're safe here with us, Martin. It's okay. Yeah. So you would say Austin. You would say Austin. Yeah, you would say Austin, Texas, was better than Austin, Minnesota. If you had to rank them, I would. I would. <laughs> I don't know. And and I'm not as you know, with some distance. I don't. You know, I've softened a bit, but you know, I've. I think the first album, the uh, Let's Go Scare Al speak to that a lot you can kind of yeah. get the sense of how i felt about growing up in austin from that album do uh i gotta ask just because even all of us growing up in minnesota um 
have print stories. You know, he used to go to the movies in Eden Prairie. And, and as a kid, you would know when Prince was in the theater and he would leave five minutes before the end of the movie. So you would kind of run after him. Um, did you did you ever was he in in your orbit ever? You have any Prince stories coming up through the Twin Cities music scene? Um, yeah, well, we recorded at Paisley Park um, and he was it was his house, you know, that's where he more or less lived. He had an apartment there. And so but when we went there, he had to go into the office, the office manager and get the rules of recording, of recording there. And uh, the rule number one, the one big one is don't look at Prince. And, and it's like, and, and I understand, I can understand it because, you know, he's, he's in his home, so to speak. And he is an crazy magnetic amazing person huge huge fan and it it would suck just having people and you know walking around just staring at him all the time and uh uh we had one one time when the gear daddies were recording there uh you'd see him he was walking around and you'd have to quick, quick avert your eyes or whatever but he came walking down the hall and randy being Randy just immediately said, hi, Prince. Like, and Prince had the greatest, like just a, the greatest smile on his face and just nodded and said, Hey, like, I think he was genuinely charmed that somebody just said, hi, you know, <laughs> like kind of didn't follow the rules. And then another uh, time I was recording there later and um, it was when he was married, this was post gear days. He was married to Maite or whatever, uh, and our youngest son, Owen, was a baby. And my wife was there uh, with Owen, holding Owen and Wilson, our other son, was running around. And a mutual friend also happened to be there. And uh, but Maite kept coming up and grabbing Owen and just dancing around with him all over the atrium area. And Prince was sitting up, like on looking over the balcony, just watching her dance around with Owen and, and actually my friend Jim who was there with us had someone come over and tell him stop looking at Prince <laughs> he, he actually got busted staring at Prince um but it's kind of sad because my day was just enamored with Owen she'd dance around with him then she'd leave and then she'd come back shortly after and grab him again and uh it was when Apparently she was pregnant with child that they lost. And I think oh. so it was um, very sad that I think, you know, it makes the story somewhat bittersweet for that, but Oh my God, she just loved, loved Owen. So yeah, I was actually with someone that got busted breaking the don't look at Prince rule. Well, that's actually my third rule in my house is don't look at me. When you're, if you ever come over again and play Stillwater, we'll have at the house. You'll learn the first two rules, but three is never take a look at me. Well, I don't even have to worry about it. I, I, <laughs> yeah. Do you want to go on just uh, only audio for the rest of the Zoom, Tom? Does that make Yeah, sense? exactly. Exactly. Please. Yeah. I should have started with that. So, Martin, I heard a story similar. So when he would do those shows at 
at Paisley Park. Sometimes they would start at four in the morning. And I remember being young and they you'd hear about it, but at the time you thought the deal was you might go over there at two and he may never even perform. So it was kind of a, in hindsight, I should have gone every single time I heard that. But the deal was <laughs> at the live shows was don't touch Prince. And so I had heard there was one live show, he's out there and he would kind of come in and co-mingle with the crowd and somebody just touched him, done, just the whole thing. <laughs> just shut her down you don't touch prince well i can that and i understand that one completely too you know it's uh i didn't and oh i had another one this was before this was like right after i had moved there and we had left a show at first avenue that we went to and we stayed and it was dan you know and the danceteria took over and as we were leaving and it was bar closing time there's, remember that the parking lots used to be right across the street. It was just a big parking lot. And apparently Prince had been at First Avenue too and doing at Danceteria. We were in the entry. And all of a sudden he comes walking out and he's walking up to this just like crazy expensive car. And two women ran up to him and said, Are you Prince? And he said, No. <laughs> and they just went, like, what are, what are they going to say then? <laughs> they just kind of looked at him and kind of went, oh, and then walked off. And he got in his expensive car and left. But, you know, those shows, that's, that's one thing I will forever, forever regret is that um, I had so many chances to see him uh, back in the day because he used to do, before Paisley, he would do the secret concerts at First Avenue. Mm-hmm. And our friend Chrissy, who booked the club, um, who was, I mean, so good to us and we owe her everything, uh, still dear friend, but she would always call me and say, give me the like heads up, like Prince is going to be here tonight. Don't tell anyone, but come on down. And I'd be sitting, I'd be at the CC club drunk, you know, and, <laughs> and no car. I never had a car. And she called me every time to tell me to, you know, gave me the heads up. And instead of jumping on a bus or having someone do that, I just, you know, stayed parked at the CC and, and never went out and man, talk about regrets. Yeah, that's no good. I, uh, Hey, let's talk about the music for a minute. I got some of your songs. Um, and you must've written these songs when you were really young. I mean, so when you look back at your body of work, and, and let's start with the Gear Daddies for a second. You know, you think of um, Statue of Jesus, uh, she's she's happy. Um, even something like Stupid Boy, which takes on this totally, you know, I have a daughter just went through college. And um, I mean, half of these songs are sort of anthems for uh, an idea about life, wear your crown. Did When you were writing that stuff, was it just pouring out of you or, or did you kind of know, do you, did it become more important as you looked back on it? It was, it was so organic. I mean, I never, ever wrote a song with the, with the thought in my head that it was going to be recorded or, you know, it just, it was a, it, it was a very personal writing and it still is more of just a personal thing that I do on my own late at night and it's cathartic. And I mean, I would write whether 
anyone listened. And actually, like, She's Happy, Fallout, my high school band, would play. I wrote that when I was 17. And um, we'd sneak it into sets, you know, when we could and just got crickets, you know. Familiarity was everything, you know. Then we do the breakup song and people go ape shit. But um, <laughs> it was uh, so a, a lot of those songs, especially of Let's Go Scare Out, I wrote in, some of them I wrote in high school. But um, yeah, I never, I never wrote anything with any thought of it being anything but just for a personal doing it for myself. And that's an unnerving experience because when you get done and then you record it, and then all of a sudden it dawns on you. It's like, holy shit, this is going out there. Right. People are going to listen to this. My parents are going to listen to this. Um, mm-hmm. People that I might've written about are going to listen to this and know what's about them. Um, and I, and worst of all, I'm going to be judged. Mm-hmm. You know, on these very, very personal, you know, stories and songs. It's like, and for me, that was really hard. The idea of being judged was, and still is. I hate it. Hate, hate, hate music criticism. And I don't. I'm not sure there are a lot of musicians that do like it. It's, it's, you know, when you're doing something that personal, to have someone dismiss it is yeah. like yeah how, well, how can you not take it personally exactly uh, so, so what what like when during your process so you you mentioned um it's cathartic do you do you just kind of randomly sit down and w- when things jump into your head you wake up in the middle of the night is it something where you sit down for a couple hours and say hey i've got these thoughts i want to get them down i mean is it just kind of an outpouring or is it more you know is it more calculated or does it depend on your mood yeah, all of the above. You know, some songs come to you, you know, like that, practically fully formed. That's the exception to the rule. But I mean, like, you know, Zamboni, my arguably, well, definitely my most successful song, you know, cash-wise. And, and, you know, unfortunately, there are a lot of people that know me only for that song. But literally wrote that song start to finish in a half hour or less you know three o'clock in the morning shit face drunk (laughs) by myself and that one you know obviously wasn't a personal experience i mean i honest to god have never had a desire to drive a zamboni (laughs) and never have even though i've had a lot of offers from the zamboni company but um uh i wrote it because i thought it was you know i thought it was really funny at mm-hmm. the time when I was writing, I thought the guys in the band were going to think it was really funny. So I kind of wrote it to entertain the rest of the guys in the band. Um, and, you know, that song wouldn't even ended up, it's not even a listed track mm-hmm. on the album it's on. It was a, it, it, it was actually a fight with our label because our A&R guy heard it after the fact while we were actually recording, uh, he was like, babe, he heard us do it live at a show. I was like, you got to do that. You got to put that on the album. He was a big hockey New York Rangers fan. And I'm like, no, no, we're not putting that on the album. I mean, it was, a, it was a, that album critically did really, really well. It made a lot of, you know, it made the LA Times 
uh, top 10 lists for that year. And it made, it was an honorable, got an honorable mention from the New York times. And it was like critics went crazy for that album. I mean, it's, and it's, you know, a serious album by and large. And so the last thing I wanted to do is dilute it with a novelty song. Right. But Bob just kept going back and forth. So that was finally the compromise we struck is like, all right, I'll put it on, but it's a hidden track, hidden track, not listed. And of course, what's, well, you know, look what's happened. <laughs> I mean, at this point in my life, I'm so thankful. Yeah, I did. I mean, that, that song being in a MasterCard ad for two years bought us our house. So yeah. Well, and then every hockey rink you go to in the country, Right. But you bring up an interesting point because you've done so much with your career and you're such an accomplished songwriter and performer. Did you ever look at that song or, and get resentful that people would relate to you and your band through just that song? Maybe did you ever feel like it, it kind of distracted from other things that you were more proud of? Absolutely. I mean, that is like, it's a perfectly fine little Diddy, but I mean, it couldn't be less representative of what I do, of my career, you know, in general. I mean, it is an aberration. It is an anomaly in my yeah. in my catalog, so to speak. And I mean, that, so yeah, the fact that there are a lot of people out there that that's the only thing they know me by is that song, and and, and knowing that that's going to be the first thing in my obituary, you know, someday. You know, I, it's not songwriter's dream to grow up and be known for a novelty song. And people will say, hey, you're lucky. Yeah. And I am. And I mean, at this point, but no doubt about it, it, uh, it sort of labeled me. It sort of labeled us for a lot of folks. And um, so, yeah, I mean, as the years go by, it's, it's, that's faded as, and, you know, a couple of years back, the lyrics were a clue on Jeopardy. Yeah. Kind of changed everything for me. Because it's like, oh, okay, this is now officially part of popular culture. Yeah. You know, yeah. When, when, you're so, when you've written a song that, even a, a dumb song like that, but it's become, you know, it's a clue on Jeopardy. And that you've seen Alex Trebek sing it and then sing the last little line kind of. And, yeah. and uh, they got it. They got it right away. So I don't know, that changed a lot. And then it was also the wake up call in the space shuttle, which that happened back when we were living in Austin. And that was my first indication that it was to become kind of part of popular culture. So, yeah, I mean, a lot of most songwriters would kill for that. And so it's, you know, it's hard to bitch about it, but there's been some resentment. To slow my heartbeat down and unclench my fist a little by little and day by day. You hammered me hard and you chipped away and you woke me down. I hope you're enjoying this conversation with Martin Zeller. That track was Wore Me Down from his Rooster's Crow album. We do have a sponsor for Can You Keep a Secret? Uh, some friends of ours at the Minnesotan. I just want to talk a little bit about this store. It's one of a kind. Uh, 
this guy, Corey Roberts, he's a curator. He's the kind of guy that would go to the basketball gym at, at Johnson high school and take some of the wood from the court and put it in the strings of the hoodie. If he was making a Johnson uh, hoodie for you, he's just one of a kind items, lots of sports stuff, hats, clothing for men and women. It is the preeminent gift spot in the twin cities, because if you buy something at the Minnesotan for your crew, your family, your friends, nobody else is going to have it. It's not like you're wearing the the same shirt from banana Republic that the eight other people in the family got. He makes one of a kind items. It's bespoke product. It's, it's short print on everything. His tagline is, uh, I think it's find yours. It's basically find your, your memory. Uh, see that thing that reminds you of, of a forgotten time, whether that's when, uh, the small town on the west side with the dream was Edina East and Edina West Cougars, uh, or it's an elementary school uh, or an O'Gara's T-shirt, um, things from the past, things from the present. I absolutely love the Minnesotan. And if you're going to be buying gifts for the holidays, don't wait until that week before the holidays and just pound your uh, credit card and checkbook. Start Start chipping away at it. Roll into the Minnesotan. Go to the Minnesotan.com and uh, and pick up a couple items uh, a little bit at a time, and you'll be a hero this holiday season. Thanks to the Minnesotan sponsoring Can You Keep a Secret? You know you only broke my heart Cause I let you break it You didn't steal my job I let you take it Do you want so uh you said scare al is kind of um you're coming out of the slaughterhouse so to speak with some of those songs some of which you wrote in high school will you just talk a little bit about some of the tracks on there that are in that kind of melancholy house i i don't know how you wrote some of that stuff at the age you were at uh, but what what on that album was kind of Austin in a time capsule for you? Maybe all of it. Yeah, all of it. Definitely colored. Every album, it's when I listen to my albums, and I don't, um, but if I were to, um, each album definitely represents a specific time and place in my life. Um, and Let's Go Scare Owls was... Uh, definitely represent was more representative of my time in Austin. And I wrote some of it after I'd moved up to the twin cities, but you know, the heavy metal boys is, is straight out of Austin. She, gosh. And then, you know, there's a lot of drinking songs and Austin was a hard drinking town, a lot of bars. And that was, you know, that's what we did. We went out on the gravel roads and drank old Milwaukee um, and so, I mean, it, it's informed everything. Growing up in Austin, it's informed everything I've done since. But Let's Go Scare Al is a very specific sort of getting Austin out of my system album. And let's talk drinking for a minute, just because uh, it's a thread through your work. And, um, you know, what uh, 
how, what role did that play in songwriting? You know, if you're writing Zamboni at three in the morning, I mean, did, did it, was it a part of your, as you were kind of growing up on stage with the gear daddies, what, what role has, you know, drinking had in your life as, as a musician? Uh, not, not, I mean, it's colored a lot of my writing, but I mean, my drinking songs are regret, really? you know, for the most part, regretful. So, I mean, songs of regret. Um, and I'm sober now and I've been sober for, for 10 years and was sober earlier in my life and fell off the wagon for a while. But, um, so, I mean, yeah, I mean, a lot of times, you know, songwriting is when you're in my case, at least, you know, when I'm happy and, you know, feeling great, I'm out doing stuff. Just it, I'm more likely to be sitting there in my room at four in the morning, you know, three, four in the morning writing when I'm sad, when I'm depressed, when I'm feeling regret, remorse, whatever. Um, so I think that's, and that's reflected in my songs generally. I mean, I, overall, I don't think I'm as, as a, as sad as some people would think I am from my material, but I just happened out right more often when I'm down. Um, and that's the stuff I need to get out of my system too. Again, cathartic, but when I'm, when I'm happy, I'm out doing stuff, but I mean, it absolutely has an, you know, can't undeniably it runs through the fact that I drank and drank too much, uh, runs through the everything I've done and hung out and, and hang out with a hard drinking crowd too. Yeah. I, uh, did it ever, you know, we talked about the trouble boys briefly, that book that Tom, you have to read too about the replacements. Did, did, uh, was it ever a hindrance to you? It sounds like it, you got really blue and you would write, um, do some writing when you were down, but as a performer, was it ever a hindrance to you? Were you, a young kid drinking too much can't do as good as you should be doing on stage or, or were you, or did you compartmentalize it? No, abs absolutely. And I was kind of, it was a, definitely was a problem. And I mean, Polygram, the, the folks at Polygram recognized that before, um, before we even kind of started the process or right when we were starting the process and, I remember Bob, our A&R man, again, kind of sat me down before we were about to sign our contract and said, listen, you know, you could piss this away really quick if, uh, you know, with, with your drinking. And I, I was sober through, you know, all that time then mm -hmm. from the time we started recording Billy's Live Bait because I just didn't want to screw everything up and you know it, it definitely i was i think a lot of people think they're going to get sober they're going to get clean it's going to be a hindrance to their creative process and that's just such bullshit mm -hmm. um so yeah i mean it was it was absolutely a problem it's been a problem drinking and drugs i mean it's not it's just it's epidemic you know we, going back to it, it's like you know the gear daddies of our era, 
we are the only band going with the original members. Mm-hmm. Um, and a big part of that is just so many of the bands of that era, someone's died. Mm-hmm. I mean, original members from the replacements and who's Gradu and soul asylum and Jayhawks and flamey nose and suburbs and run Westy run. Um, I've lost members and you know, I, it, it's, it, it's not a healthy life. It, it, this, this business is rough. I mean, name one other job where you show up for work, so to speak for sound check at two o'clock in the afternoon. The first thing they ask you is what beer you want in your dressing room. Right. I mean, it's like you, you show up and start drinking it too and keep going until, you know, all night and, you know, and drugs were always around and, uh, it's a, and everyone's chain smoking. It, it's, it, it's a really tough job to stay clean and sober and healthy doing. Um, but yeah, we, we trying to think of any other band of our contemporaries and I've, you know, calling the replacements or who's could do or any, most of the bands are contemporaries is I just mean coming up at the same time. Yeah. And we are, um, I'm trying to think if there's anyone else still playing with all the original members. Mm-hmm. And I don't think there is. Well, was there ever a time It's interesting. I, I, I'm assuming this is kind of a silly question, but during all that time, was there ever a time you thought about doing something else? Was there ever a time that you were you were kind of like you know this isn't just you know I, I've had success. Look, I mean, I guess just thinking about it from your career and your position as a, a head of a, a band and a, a great songwriter and all the things we've already discussed. Do you ever get to a point where you're like, man, this lifestyle just isn't for me? It's kind of worn on me. A, a thousand times, but I never had that option. I mean, mm-hmm. I. I've told, you know, I've told people this and it's something parents of don't want to hear when they have kids that want to be in a band or whatever. But, um, you know, I've got friends that are so much, that are much more talented than I that have had uh, a lot less success. And part of it is they got a college degree um, or they had a, a skill set and they, um, there's so many times when this sucks so bad, you know, not having insurance, not, you know, the hours, just uh, being on the road that I think people would be lying if everyone hadn't had points where they're like, screw this, man, I want a regular life. Um, and so my friends that had a college degree hit those points and they had the option to go to a regular life, you know, and they took it. I put all of my eggs into this basket. I, I went all in on music from the second I moved up to the Twin Cities. You know, the last job I had was stocking shelves at Target on the overnight shift. Mm-hmm. And if I, and it, if it all ended and I couldn't continue to make a living doing this, this is all I've done. I, I've not had a job other than music for since, you know, target days. Yeah. Um, and that's about what I'd be qualified to do if I have to go back into the workforce. I, d- I don't, I don't have a degree. I don't have a 
a skill set other than this. And so I've, I've been, and that's a big part of my success. I've been forced to just keep going and figure out a way to like make it work because yeah. this is all I'm, all I'm qualified to do. I love it. Um, hey, I, a uh, couple things. Um, Tom, think of, I want to be respectful of Martin's time, but we'll, we'll wind down with just a couple more questions. You know, you talked about Zamboni being, at the start of your obituary, right? And um, I can relate because it'll. I'm a guy who judges adolescent boys hockey hair in the state tournament. So no matter what I do, that'll be um, what I'm known for, which is even worse um, technically. But what if you had a song, um, a record, a song that is Martin Zeller, it's not the novelty of Zamboni. If you had to nail it down to one song, this is what I do. What would that song be or songs? Boy, I don't know if I could, I don't know if I could They're nail like, it down. Because it ask me hour to hour almost, you know, it's same like what's your, what is your favorite song by another artist? Same thing. It's like, God, ask me now, ask me in six hours and I'll be like, no, no, that's what it is. And <laughs> It's pretty, it's pretty all over. My taste in music is really all over the place. Um, what are you proud of? A song you're, you're the same way Zamboni maybe paid the bills, but you kind of cringe a little bit. What's a song you're proud of? Um, boy, I don't know. The songs that I'm proud of are the songs that, unfortunately like the albums I'm most proud of are because they're so personal are the ones that maybe have resonated the least with other people um, because they're so specific to me and so specific to, um, you know, dark period. So my, my last full album Rooster's Crow, I think is the one I'm most uh, proud of. And again, it's, it's, it's kind of a, it's a bit of a dark album. And I think for a lot of people that haven't gone through some of the things, depression and some of the things, it just doesn't resonate. And that's just how it is. And I really, in the one album that I keep going back to that I, uh, born under is an album that I'm, I, if I were to go back and say, there's not a lot I would redo. It's it, it, that would be it. Um, but that's one of the things, one of the reasons I don't listen to my own stuff when I is the only times I've ever listened to my own stuff is when it's been on the, like I'll go to a party and someone puts it on, yep. you know, and then I hear it. All I hear is what I wish I had done differently. Yep. All I hear are the mistakes. All I hear are the, are the things that make me cringe. You know, it's just, I, that's me. And I think it might be, I think it's fairly common with other artists. I mean, I'm absolutely not my own biggest fan. And I, I can say I'm not a big fan of other artists that I can tell that they're a big fan of themselves. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I, it's, it's, it's so personal. And, and because it's so personal, the more personal it is, the less likely it is to be something that, like I said, resonates 
with someone else's experience. Yep. I, uh, well, I got one Kinga really quick because I'm yeah. interested. Um, you know, we're all fathers. We have kids and uh, all sorts of different ages. Do your kids know about your success yeah. and do they like your music and your wife? Are they, or is it more just like, Hey, your dad and hubby and, and uh, you go do your thing and we'll see you when you get back. I'm just always curious when I talk to people that are celebrities and music or sports, you know, their kids always seem very disinterested in what their, their father or mother has done. But no, absolutely. I'm, I'm, and I'm proud of that. I mean, I don't, I'm, I'm dad. I'm, I'm my, I'm my wife's husband. Um, and although, and I don't, it's not like if somebody put on one of my albums, I'd be like, turn that off, yeah. you know, around the house. But I did find out and it was like, it really was so cool to hear um, that uh, when like the family goes on road trips to, I'll be working and the rest of the family goes on road trips to go see grandpa and grandma in Wisconsin or whatever. And I'm off working that they, the tradition is to put on like my albums and listen to them. Oh, I didn't. I had no idea that that they did that. Yep. Um, so I mean, that that was very cool there, but it, it was a complete shock to me. Oh, that's um, really nice. I want to hear your voice? Yeah, and they they know the stuff and like it and sing along and and but that I had no idea. Yeah, that's excellent. That's great. Hey, how did the Neil thing start? Just quickly, I, I, I picture you having like, you're so deep into Neil, you got a dog named Shiloh probably somewhere in Mexico or who knows, but what, how, how, I mean that, I went to a bunch of those shows early on and you're still doing them now. How did, talk about your love affair of Neil Diamond when it started. And Well, yeah, that it's, couldn't be further from the truth because it started as an absolute tongue in cheek joke. <laughs> Was not a Neil Diamond fan at all. <laughs> That's fantastic. Um, we uh, we decided you know, the, we were friends with the guys in Soul Asylum. And they were doing that the big you know New Year's Eve show at the Hyatt downtown, and so we decided it would just be hilarious if we put together a Neil Diamond tribute band to open for them. And this was early Soul Asylum. They were still very very hard and and we thought it was just going to be the sort of Andy Kaufman like performance art piece that we're just going to be the objects of scorn. And these young <laughs> punk kids were just going to throw shit at us and be pissed uh, off that there was a Neil Diamond cover band on opening for him. And no, they loved it. <laughs> it was, and, uh, and then, you know, and we, and so it started out completely tongue in cheek and, and then, you know, as a songwriter, the more I became familiar with the songs, the more you're just kind of like, holy shit, these are, the guy can write a song. And so became more of a fan as I started listening to the songs and like just realizing how masterfully they're constructed. And then ultimately I got a chance to, I met him and he was the, he is the most just lovely human being. He really, truly is the most decent and sweet man. Um, seemed more, more like your, you know, my sweet grandpa, mm -hmm. some huge star. 
um, very self-deprecating, very all he talked about when I met him. It, it so happened that a, an old friend of ours from years ago ended up working for him. And uh, she knew that we were doing these Neil things or whatever. So she, you know, called me up and we were in the Twin Cities at the time and said, hey, Neil's come to town for three nights. Do you want tickets? And I'm like, heck yeah. Yeah, I want tickets. So went to the first show with my wife um, and Barbara, our friend, called and was like, are you going to come back and meet Neil? And I'm like, no, no, that'd be weird. And uh, so went the second night. Again, she calls and like, come on, you got to come back stage and meet Neil. I'm like, no, that'd be weird. I'm, that's, I'd just be uncomfortable. Finally, third night, she's like, Martin, come back and meet Neil. You'll kick yourself if you don't. And I thought, I'm like, God, she's right. I had a chance to go backstage and meet Neil Diamond. And, you know, so I just went back and he came out and Barbara brought him over to meet me. And she had told him all about me and he remembered all of it. And all he talked about is me. He's like, so I understand. Now you're on Ryko disc. That's now they're a great little label. And he kept, kept going on. And then one of my, my favorite moment was he, uh, I was, he asked who, 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 who's your booking agency. And at the time I was booked by William Morris, this behemoth. And he gave me a little hug. He put his arm around me, gave me a little hug. and said, that's good representation, son. <laughs> So he, he was just, he was such a sweet man. So, I mean, I am a, I'm a big fan of yeah. him now. Um, but I mean, frankly, the whole thing kind of took on a life of its own that was, you know, it, almost like the Zamboni thing, you know, it sucked to all of a sudden be known by a lot of people as the Neil Diamond. Matter of fact, we stopped doing it for years because I was sitting at the bar at O'Gara's and uh, this big banner behind the bar saying Martin Zeller in the hard ways going to be there, you know, in a week or whatever. And I was just there saying hi to my friend, Dan, who owned the place. And so I'm sitting at the bar and all of a sudden these two guys are down at the end of the bar and they had no idea who I was. And all of a sudden I hear one of them say, Martin Zeller, who's Martin Zeller? Like they're looking at the, and I'm like, Oh shit. <laughs> just, uh, waiting for the other shoe to drop on this. And finally one goes, Oh God. Yeah. That's the, that's the Neil Diamond impersonator. And I was like, Oh, oh. shit. Like, so it was done. We, we like, <laughs> uh, I, I hung it up for quite a while there, but ultimately, you know, one of the reasons I've been able to make a living doing this. And because I, again, because this is, I had to find a way to make a living doing this is because I've got Gear Daddy's, you know, shows that we do three, four times a year. I've got Hardway shows. I've got solo acoustic shows. I do a lot of house concerts and I've got the Neil thing. Mm -hmm. So I've got a pretty, you know, I've got all these different things that can make it much easier to keep me busy. And, um, and you know, the Neil stuff is, is fun because what I don't give a shit. It's like, I don't take it personally if you know, people don't like it and it, it works on a lot of levels. A lot of people come because they think still think it's kind of tongue in cheek and funny. And mm -hmm. we don't do a true like Neil Diamond tribute by any means. It's kind of a hard rocking 
more, you know, like it's, 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 it's not a true Neil Diamond cover band, but then there are some people that come that are huge Neil Diamond fans. And it's like a vicarious Neil Diamond experience. So there's a people come for a lot of different reasons and it works on all those levels. And everybody knows all those songs, whether they're a fan or not. And familiarity is everything in the music with and nostalgia. I mean, Gear Daddies are a nostalgia band. You know, we really are. We're an oldies band and I'm fine with that. We were the soundtrack of a lot of people's college years and lives. And that's, you know, it's easy to book that. And I got to tell you, this might be a last a little thing for you, but so you've performed multiple times in our, I live in Stillwater, Minnesota, and you've performed fantastically for our group here. That's a blast. Yeah. yeah. And I think every single woman in that crowd wants to have sex with you. So I was just curious to see like how that makes you feel. Speaking of nostalgia, I've never in my life stood back with a beer and felt so emasculated when I'm watching someone perform because even my wife's like, yeah, you can just get the fuck out of here. I'll call you later. But you're beloved. I mean, you're literally beloved in this state and, and I, it's just the way you carry yourself and your bandmates, um, you know, I mean, you could come every night and you'd be packed. Uh, I mean, I seriously am incredibly lucky. Everybody. I mean, it's a cliche for, for, um, fans to say our fans are the greatest but i mean there is a we have a serious case to make as far as that with you know my fans the gear daddy's fans um had the the support i mean they just it's still you know we can still go to first avenue and sell out the room that's crazy we haven't put out an album in (laughs) how many years um and we can go and sell two, three shows a year at still at First Avenue. Um, and, you know, I did the one of the this whole COVID thing is weird. But, you know, I did a, a um, couple streams from my back, you know, little studio here early on. Yeah. And, you know, there were 5000 people watching and. That's crazy. I mean, and 50, all 50 states had people watching from all 50 states, people watching from six countries. Um, And it it was really, you know, nothing's ever going to replace going out and seeing a live show, but I'm not going to tour. I'm likely not going to tour anymore. So it was very cool because I still have fans all over the place um, that haven't had a chance to see me in years and years. And that was sort of gratifying to see that I still have, there's still people out there. And yeah, a lot of them are frankly transplanted Midwesterners. <laughs> we go to Arizona and you know, the, the lines are down the block and like, God, we're huge in Phoenix until everybody in the club is like, I used to go see it, Kirby's in Fargo. I used to go see it. They're all tra- they're all people from the Midwest that now live. And, 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 you know, frankly, everywhere we go, same thing, you know, we go to LA there's a good crowd, but half the crowd there are people that are originally from Minnesota. Yeah. Um, so in Denver, same. God, there's a lot of transplanted Minnesotans in Denver. Totally. But so yeah, no, I mean, our fans, my fans have just, you know, stuck with me and been very, very, very cool and loyal. And, and we've don't take them for granted. Very cool. I, I got a, um, 
people will be upset because you do so little of this if I don't ask a couple song questions. So how, when you, how do you write She's Happy and have, I guess maybe you didn't even have perspective. You were just writing about a woman that seemed happy at the VFW club. But what, can you just tell a story of that song? Like writing that, if you remember when you put it together? Oh yeah, I remember. It's weird because songs that are that old at this point and seem like covers when I do them, you know, it's yep. I'm so far removed. But I mean, it was, it's very definitely go to a VFW club in Austin, Minnesota on a weekend night and you're going to see, still see that woman, but she was sort of this compilation between one of our neighbors and, and my aunt. And uh, I was an angry young man. I hated being in Austin. I thought I was way too cool to be there. And, and just as it, as time went on, I became more and more embittered about being there. So I was always just sort of legitimately baffled by those people that were so, and, and, and now, you know, envious, like just, they're just happy. It's like, they don't care. I mean, it's just like life is good and those little things bring them joy and, I suppose the older I get, the more I understand that to some extent, but um, that character is, again, you're going to see her or him still, if you go to a if you go to a service club in Austin, Minnesota this day, and then she was specifically pieces of two people who I knew personally and drew like details, you know, very, you know, so when you're writing that as an angry young guy, are you saying she's happy and you don't relate to it? Or are you saying, um, cause as I agree with you, that song for me means a lot today because as you chase everything in the world, you realize that that lady at the bar loving Elvis probably is happier than you are, you know, doing, yep. but I, but did you know that at the time or were you just kind of doing a portrait? Yeah, doing the portrait. I mean, if anything, I was a little more like, you know, scornful, like, oh, my God. Um, yeah. So yeah. No, I've come around big time. Um, confused. I think back then I was almost more confused. Like, are you kidding me? I, I, I did not did not get it. And so, yeah, definitely a portrait. And yeah, it's interesting. Like there are songs like that that as time goes on, how I, how I look back and realize, you know, I'm not that angry young man and embittered. I don't know. So yeah, yeah. it's a uh, many meanings. They kind of go for it. Yeah. And, you know, being a songwriter, people, I think a lot of people don't get, it. it's like, it's a lot of it is just stories being told to you and going, Hey, that's a song, you know, that not everything is autobiographical. Yeah. autobiographical uh it's like a lot of it's just listening and you know you go hang out to this day you go hang out at a vfw club in austin minnesota and just sit and listen and you're probably going to be told five great songs over the course of the night or you're going to overhear five great songs over the course of the night so yeah songwriting is 
to at least for me is being, you know, listening and, and really great stories are told to you are overheard and you're just like, there's a song mm-hmm. lines, specific lines. You're just another stupid boy. It's just a, a line. And immediately it's like, Oh, that's a, uh, drank so much tonight. I just feel stupid was, you know, my roommate, our roommate stumbled in to the house. We were all home and he, we'd all been out the bars. He showed up like three o'clock in the morning, like literally walked into a wall, looked at us, said that line, marched up to his bedroom. And as soon as he, I just like got out a pencil, wrote that line down and then, you know, was able to like build a song. And I mean, I will say, you know, like it would be impossible to, to probably write those songs if you didn't get it, if, if you didn't have an experience, you know, experiences that made you like go, Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I get that. Um, that's great. So yeah. That's a, that's a, it's a huge part of songwriting. Just yeah. listening. That's awesome. Well, Hey Tom, did you have anything else? No, I mean, this has been fantastic. I mean, again, from my perspective, being a huge fan of yours, um, meeting you, watching you perform. I mean, you're a true, uh, it's like you mentioned when you, when you met Neil Diamond, you know, what's that thing? Never meet your, your hero, so to speak. Cause they always seem to let you down. You definitely don't let us down. So really appreciate your time and it's hopefully we'll get you out here soon and see you again. Yeah. yeah Ollie, well, thank you very much for having me. If you, you know, hopefully there's something you can use. Otherwise edit the hell out of it or <laughs> throw it away. I won't be offended. I won't be offended. No. I'm gonna go deep into Rooster's Crow. I'm gonna dim the lights. I'm going. I'm going right to to the most recent, um, and I'll, we'll have our listeners do the same. But I thank you so much. You are such a good guy. It's um, it's. I think you're you're. It's just perfect that you're the way you are. Um, so thanks for doing this and helping us get started. And uh, take care of yourself down in Mexico, and we'll be in the crowd when uh, when there's a crowd. Excellent. Thank you guys very much. Take care. Yeah, you be good. Take care of your family. Bye-bye. Vamos. Vamos.